Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 1, says this. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and you will prepare your way before you. He will, and who will prepare your way before you? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and then they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. A few years ago, there's a man by the name of Paul uh, Boldling, and he was in his 60s, and um, he was on vacation in Croatia, and him and his wife were on this little island and they were snorkeling. And so they were just kind of taking turns snorkeling. They had you know, their stuff set up on the beach. And so one of them would go in and snorkel. The other one would just kind of stay by their stuff. And they were just kind of taking turns doing that. Um, and uh, Paul went into the water, snorkeled, came back the one time. And he was just kind of tired. So he just took a nap in the sand. And when he woke up, he had no idea where he was. He's like, where am I? How did I get here? Um, he was terrified. He kept asking his wife over and over again, like, did I have heat stroke? Uh, was I out too, too long in the sun? He asked his, his uh, wife that about 20 times. So he has no idea where he, ha where he is. He has no recollection of the, the vacation that they had been on. I think they had been on it for like seven days at this point. And so his wife is kind of concerned about him, of course, and she takes him into the town to see if maybe uh, some familiar sights would jog his memory. But they go to a restaurant, and he can't even order his food, has no recollection of anything uh, of the past uh, seven days. Uh, obviously, he knows who she is. He's able to function. But it's like his memories are shut off. And so they're both very concerned. And then in a moment, it all came back. It was about a six-hour period that this happened, and all of his memories came back. And he remembered everything except for those six hours where he was confused. Um, and so they were worried that he maybe had a stroke or had some more uh, severe, severe um, issue. But it turned out he had an issue or a syndrome, I don't even know how you call it. It's called global transient amnesia. Um, scientists don't really know exactly why it happens, but it happens to some people, and sometimes it happens when uh, you're under stressful circumstances or on vacation where basically your hippocampus kind of, kind of shuts off. 
And so you don't have access to your short-term memories for a certain amount of time. And then after that, it just kind of comes back on. And nobody really knows why it happens or, or what, what happens with it. But the question that people always ask when that happens is, where am I? How did I get here? It's a question that probably most of us have asked at one point or another. Uh, often we ask this when we're going through difficult times, when we're going through times of trauma. I remember when I was in... Uh, eight year, I was eight years old, and my family was in a really severe car accident. And uh, so somebody came and got me out of the car, and they set me in somebody else's car. And I remember sitting on the edge of the seat in that car, and I remember seeing sirens, hearing, um, hearing lots of different noises, people coming up to me that I didn't know. And I remember just kind of all these sights and thinking to myself, where am I? How did this happen? How did I get here? It's a question that we often ask as we're facing the struggles of life. Some of us, maybe we started off one direction in our career and we ended up over here and we're asking ourselves, like, I started going this way. How did I get where I am today? Or maybe some of us started off with a relationship and hopes of a relationship and maybe we find ourselves unexpectedly single. And maybe we started off with a full bank account and now we're struggling and we're thinking to ourselves, like, how did I get here? Maybe we had really good health, and now we deal with debilitating illnesses or pain. And like, how did I get from that active, healthy person to being someone who struggles in pain? Some of us struggle with addictions. Maybe it's the drugs, alcohol, pornography, or food. And we ask ourselves, how did I get here? How did it get this bad? How did I get to this point in my life? It's a question that a lot of us ask as we're kind of evaluating our lives and we get some place that's kind of different than the, the place that we expected and we ask ourselves, how did I get here? And in this passage, I think we're going to look at kind of a game plan for how do we respond when we're asking those questions. When we're processing our life or different areas of our life and we're asking ourselves, how did I get to this place? So this question may have been a question that was in the mind of John the Baptist. Um, and I think the first thing we learn in this passage is that even the faithful often struggle with doubt. Even the faithful often struggle with doubt. Think about the story of John the Baptist. He's kind of, he lives kind of like a wild man, lives this kind of ascetic lifestyle. He eats locusts and honey. Uh, he gave up the normal pleasures of life in order to um, carry out the call that God had for his life. He was incredibly bold. He, had this, he spoke this message of repentance to prepare for the Messiah. And you get kind of a sampling of that in Matthew chapter 3 just to kind of remind us of, of how bold he was. He says uh, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He, that's incredibly bold to speak to the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees ha had some degree of power, and he's not shy about speaking out against them. Upon seeing Jesus, he makes the incredibly profound statement. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has the incredible humility to say that Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He has the esteemed privilege to baptize the Son of God. 
He has the courage to call out Herod Antipas for his sin uh, and his immoral marriage. But now he's in prison. He's in prison. He's alone. And he's probably asking himself the question, how did I get here? How did I get to a point where, I mean, I was preaching out in the wilderness. I was talking about this kingdom of God that was coming. There were people coming and they were being baptized. They were believing the message, getting ready for the Messiah. And I had this great following. I had all this hope. And now I'm in prison. Now I'm alone. And I don't know what the future holds. And as the readers, we know that he's soon going to be put to death. This also caused him to question Jesus. Thinks to himself, maybe I was wrong about him. Maybe he's not really the Messiah that I was expecting that he would be. And why would he question that? He probably questioned that because he had been speaking a message of repentance, a message of judgment. And it seemed like he believed the Messiah was going to come in judgment and judge those who did wrong. And so he's probably thinking to himself, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is who he says he is, then why am I in prison? If he is who he says he is, then why doesn't he come and judge Herod? Why is he out there just healing people and speaking kindly to people and hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Why is he doing all of these things and here I am rotting in prison? There's reasons that he might have felt disillusioned. And so he, sa- he hears of the deeds of Christ. He sends messengers to Jesus to ask Are you the one, or should we be expecting another? And Jesus responds to the messengers of John, and he says this, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, it's interesting that Jesus would respond in that way, to to tell the messengers of John, Go and tell Jesus what what you see. It's interesting because the reason this whole episode started was because John heard of the things that were happening with Jesus. So John knew what was happening. John knew what Jesus was, ha- what Jesus was doing. So why does Jesus tell him to go, tell the, the messengers to go and tell John what they see? Well, the reason that he does so is he's using very specific language, which are echoes of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And so Basically, what he's doing here is saying, you see these things that are happening? The dead are raised, the lame are being healed, the blind are receiving sight. You look at those and think, that means that Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not coming in judgment. He's not vindicating your cause. But I'm saying, yes, I am the Messiah. I am fulfilling the Old Testament prophets. It's just not in the prophecy. It's just not in the way that you think that I should. See, it's the same circumstance. Jesus is doing the same things. He's healing. He's hanging out with the sinners, the tax collectors. He's doing the same things, but John interprets this as a failure. Jesus says, this isn't a failure. It's a fulfillment. It's just not the way that you thought that it was going to play out. You thought that I was going to come in judgment and vindicate all those who are righteous. And there's one day that I'm going to come and do that, but that's not the time now. And so I am who... I say I am, I am the Messiah, and, the, and these, these prophecies are being fulfilled among you. The same events in our life, sometimes we can either see them as fulfillment or failure. When we face difficult circumstances, we have that choice. 
Is God fulfilling his purposes or is God failing in his purposes? And in these moments in John's life, it was a dark time in his life, he questioned, is God really fulfilling his purposes or are his purposes on hold? Did I get it all wrong? And even the faithful sometimes struggle with doubt. And I think sometimes we need a slight change of perspective. We interpret our circumstances wrongly. We don't see them with the eyes of Christ. We don't see the full picture. And so by faith, we believe that God is fulfilling even when it seems like he's failed. I love the Bible in the sense that the Bible is real. You know, a lot of ancient Near Eastern literature, uh, they portray heroes, and the heroes of, of their particular faith traditions are like gods. They don't do wrong. And what they do is they kind of omit any negative characteristics from their lives. It's not like that in the Bible. We see everything. And it's encouraging to me that even someone with such a great stature like John the Baptist, who was so bold, who had so much faith, who had such a privilege in, the king, in preparing for God's kingdom, he doubted, he struggled. And that's an encouragement to all of us, that even the faithful struggle. Even the faithful sometimes wonder, has God failed? Or is God fulfilling his purposes? And so when we go through experiences of testing and doubt, when we get to a place where we're like, how did I get here? Know that we're not alone. That even the faithful sometimes struggle. Second thing we th- see in this passage is that God is taking each of us to different destinations. To kind of sum up kind of the way that God has interacted with people a very simplistic way. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets uh, taught the people how to live, but also pointed forward towards the Messiah and how to prepare for him. Um, and it's kind of illustrated in Hebrews chapter 1. We see the kind of the, the old versus the new. Uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, whom also he created the world. And so Old Testament law and the prophets, speaking on behalf of God, preparing for the Messiah, New Testament, Jesus, preaching the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, empowers us to live, live godly lives. And John was kind of that hinge in between the two eras. He's the last in the line of prophets. And Jesus makes an incredible statement. He says that uh, of, of people who were born uh, of women, John is the greatest of any of them. But he says the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. It's really a remarkable thing to say that John is kind of the greatest of the prophets, but even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, why is that? It's, because, it's not because of John's faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. John was very faithful to the message God had given him. He was faithful to the role that God had called him to. But those who know Christ, who are in the kingdom of God, they have a fuller picture. And we have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And so we have a different perspective than John. John fulfilled his purposes in kind of the end of the Old Testament era. And as believers in Christ, it's incredible that even the least of us, and many of us would consider ourselves the least in the kingdom of heaven, and yet God says that we're greater than John the Baptist. It's an incredible privilege. 
And we look at this, and, and God has a specific plan for each and every one of us, our lives. He had a specific plan for John. He has a specific plan for us. And God's plan for you is different than the person sitting next to you. Of course, there's many qualities that he wants in all of us. He wants us all to be people of love. He wants us all to trust him. He wants us all to live lives of purity, to obey him. Yet the particulars are different for each and every one of us. But that's okay. John had a different mission than Jesus and different than us. And that's okay. God doesn't judge us based on what he's called our neighbor to do. He's called, he judges us based on what he's called us to do. And so we can't play that comparison game. Sometimes people will look at other people's lives and say, well, if I was really godly, my life would look like theirs. Well, maybe, maybe not, though. Maybe if you were more godly, your life would look like your life, just a little bit more godly. Because God has a different purpose for each and every one of us. And we can't play that comparison game because God's called each of us to a different calling. He judges us based on what he calls us to do, not what he's called someone else to do. And so we don't need to compare ourselves to others. And when we get into that place where we're thinking to ourselves, how did I get here? You know, there's always that temptation to play the comparison game. Like if I really had it all together, I wouldn't be struggling. If I really was honoring God, if I really had faith, I would be like this other person whose life is just going great. That's not necessarily the case. God has a plan for each and every one of us, and it's different. And so we need to just walk forward in obedience. We need to trust him no matter what he calls us to do. And God has a different plan for your neighbor. So let's not compare ourselves to somebody else. Comparison is just going to destroy us. If we feel like we're doing better, it's going to fill us with pride. That's not something that's of God. And if we're not doing better, then it's going to fill us with despair. Like, what am I doing wrong? So there's no point in comparison. God has a plan for each and every one of us, and it's not worth comparing. The final thing we see is that people will criticize us. People will criticize us. Jesus and John had very different modes of living. Uh, John the Baptist, of course, lived a very austere lifestyle. He was known for fasting. It's not that Jesus never fasted. We know that he fasted for some extended periods of time in his life. So not that Jesus never fasted, but John was especially known for his fasting. He was known for his clothing and, and kind of primitive, uh, the way that he dressed. Um, he was known for eating locusts and honey, foregoing the pleasures of life, living out in the wilderness. So he has a very different uh, mode of living than Jesus. And yet John is called, uh, apparently he was accused of having a demon. And then you have Jesus on the other hand, who again, this is kind of a caricature, but you know, he fasted at some times, but he was known as, you know, eating and drinking. Um, he was known as hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And um, they said he's a drunkard. He's a glutton. Um, he's not of God. So what does this tell us? It tells us people will criticize. People will criticize. And they criticize John for being austere. They, they criticize Jesus for being glutton and, and hanging out with the tax collectors. It just means that people are going to criticize. Um, Jesus uses this little parable of, uh, he says, this generation is like children in the marketplace. The children say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. So this parable, the children are playing and they are getting mad because people aren't playing along. 
So for John the Baptist, it's like they're playing the flute. They want him to be happy. They want him to be a man of joy. And they're like, he's just, he's just a crazy person. He's out in the wilderness. That's what the critics say. He's out in the wilderness. He lives this insane lifestyle. Why doesn't he just lighten up a little bit? Why doesn't he just kind of loosen his methods? Why doesn't he be a little bit softer in the way that he speaks? And John the Baptist, he's not fitting into their mold. He's not playing along. And then Jesus, on the other hand, he's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And people are like, he should be a little bit more religious. Like, he should avoid those people. He should be fasting more. Uh, He shouldn't be enjoying life with them like he is. And yet Jesus isn't going to fit in their mold either. And when we're following after God and we're not fitting into people's mold, they're going to criticize us. It's just a fact of life. It doesn't matter what the destination is, we'll experience criticism. People like to criticize. Unfortunately, criticism is far too common in the church. Um, Author... Don Basham once said this, sometimes I think the whole Christian world is made up of just two groups. Those who speak their faith and accomplish significant things for God and those who criticize and malign the first group. Sadly, I've found that this is often the case. I don't know if it's the second group feels insecure about the first group, but it's often the case that there's a group of people who are honoring and want to follow after God and accomplish things for God And there's others who like to criticize what those people making a difference are doing. doesn't matter what the destination is. People will criticize. It's always amazing to me. Have you ever been to a Sabres game before and the Sabres are on a power play and they're like trying to set up the play and passing and and everyone's yelling, shoot, shoot, as if they'd never thought about that before. Like, they've been playing hockey their whole lives, and they never thought, oh, I guess I should shoot. <laughs> or they're skating down the ice, and, like, I mean, they're these elite athletes better than everybody else around them. And, you know, you have this, like, overweight person who's never played hockey in their life, and they're yelling, you stink, skate, move it. I mean, people like to criticize. And it's just a fact of life. And, of course, that's kind of an extreme example, but people will criticize us. And when we're in that place where we, we find ourselves like, how did I get here? There'll, people, there'll be people who come into our lives that say, you put yourself there. You put yourself there. Think about John. I'm sure that people were saying, you know, John's in prison now. And I'm sure there were people that were saying, John got what, coming, what was coming to him. I mean, if he was truly, truly a man of God, he wouldn't be in prison. If he was truly faithful to the mission God had for him, Jesus would come and rescue him. Jesus wouldn't leave him in prison. He wouldn't be rotting there. Perhaps they questioned his methods. They probably said, well, he should have been a little bit more soft-spoken. He shouldn't have called out Herod for his sin. He should have just kept to himself. He shouldn't have been so extreme. And so I'm sure they were questioning him. And we know that they were questioning Jesus. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. People considered him smitten by God, afflicted. That he must have been doing something terribly wrong if God would allow him to be crucified. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised when we experience criticism. And when we're in our lowest point, or maybe we're questioning, and people come along and say, you put yourself here. This passage is a reminder that also, not just that people will criticize us, but that we all have this tendency in our heart to criticize others. If only there were, was evil people out there somewhere that we could avoid. But often the evil is in our own hearts. That we all have this tendency to judge and to criticize. And we do this often in three ways. The first way is that we criticize that which we don't understand. Someone does something different than we do. Someone that maybe looks different than we do. Behaves different than we do. We don't understand their story. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know what has led them to that point. And so sometimes we criticize them. We criticize what we see, but we don't really know their story. We could also criticize, and this is really interesting to me, but I've seen this happen again and again. Sometimes we criticize people that exemplify who we want to be. We criticize people who are better at what we want to be better at. And, and there's some kind of insecurity in our hearts that, you know, this person does this better than me. And so rather than appreciating the fact that God has blessed them in that way or maybe even trying to improve ourselves, we try to bring that other person down. We criticize them because they exemplify who we want to be. And if we can just kind of bring them down, maybe it will bring us up. This is kind of like Cain who's jealous of Abel. God doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And so he wants to bring Abel down. Now, remember God, what God said to him? He's like, just do what's right. I mean, why are you upset? Just do what's right. But instead, he tries to bring down the person who does right. And finally, sometimes our criticism is accurate, but it's deadly. Perhaps our criticism of someone else is completely valid. Perhaps they're doing something is, that is wrong. And so maybe we feel like because they're doing something that's wrong or maybe their life looks different than ours, that it's okay to criticize them. And even if the criticism is accurate, the, strangely, criticism can take hold of our hearts. And if we have a critical spirit, we become a part of the problem. And oftentimes, we can even become like the person that we're criticizing. And, and criticism can just darken our souls. Um, there's a book called Sabbath Time, and in that book, uh, Tilden Edwards tells about a family with teenage children who decided that they're going to avoid any criticism of each other on, on Sundays. And what they found was that their teenage sons, their, their friends, would always want to come over on Sundays. They never told them that they, that they weren't criticizing on Sundays, but naturally they were drawn to that because nobody wants to be around criticism. I mean, and of course, this is different than speaking the truth in love. There's times where we have to confront someone else about something that they're doing is wrong. But having a heart of criticism, it can just kind of destroy us. There's a story uh, Erwin Lutzer tells about a lady who goes to a divorce attorney. She, she really just hates her husband, uh, really wants to, to kind of punish him. And uh, she says, well, I, I want to divorce him. I just want to take his money, take him to the cleaners. I, but I, I want to hurt him badly. What can I do to really stick it to him? And the lawyer said, well, here's what you do. For the next couple months, I want you to speak really kindly of him. Don't say a negative thing about him at all. 
And then after that three months, then just walk away. I mean, he's going to think that you love him. He's going to think that you care about him. And then you're just going to really stick it to him and walk away. So she's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to really stick it to him. And so he, she does that. She, she speaks kind words for three months. Every th- time he did something nice, she commended him for it. She told him what a great guy he was. Thinks that, and, and, and she's you know, going about that. But as the time went on, she found that her heart changed. And after three months, she didn't want to be divorced anymore. In fact, they went on a second honeymoon. Their whole relational dynamics changed as they removed criticism from their lives. Criticism can destroy relationships. It can destroy churches. And we need to rid it from our lives. Again, not speaking the truth in love. There's times when we have to confront someone. But having this heart of judging other people around us, criticizing them for the things that they do or the way that they act, it's not something that's going to lift us up and help us become uh, fully conformed to the image of Christ. So in conclusion, when we ask ourselves this question, like, how did I get here in my life? First, we need to remember that even the faithful struggle with that question. And we're not alone. It's human to struggle at times. And just because we doubt doesn't mean that we're not Christians or uh, that we're not good Christians. Also, we need to remember that God has a personalized individual plan for each and every one of us. He's called your neighbor to something different than he's called us to. So he has a different plan for us. We can't play that comparison game. And finally, we need to realize that when we are in that place, sometimes we're at our lowest, we're going to experience criticism. Sometimes it's even friendly fire from the people that we love, care about, people even in the body of Christ. So we need to recognize that, but also we need to make sure that we're not becoming part of the problem, that we're not adopting that critical spirit. Remember when I was in high school, sometimes um, people would ask that question like, where do you see yourself in five or ten years? And it's an interesting question, and, you know, it's helpful in that you can kind of hone in on what's important to you and hone in on kind of a direction in your life. But as I've kind of looked back at my life, I, I kind of never know where I'm going to be the next five years. I mean, I would never imagine, you know, kind of the things that are happening in my life now uh, five years ago. And, and five years ago, I would never imagine, um, you know, Five years before that, I would never imagine the things that were happening to me five years ago. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen five years from today. You know, as we're living our lives, we're always kind of sojourners. We're always kind of taking just the next step. And God often only gives us the next step. He doesn't give us the full picture of what's coming. And we all eventually come to that place where, you know, okay, here's my plan. This is where I saw myself. But this is where God has me. And we ask ourselves that question, how did I get here? And as believers in Jesus, really the answer to that question is, God brought me here. I might not understand it. I might not know why. I might not like the fact that he brought me here. But he's brought me here. And I need to trust that he's fulfilling his purposes through me. That even though I don't understand it, that his plan has not failed me. In John Perkins' memoir, Dream With Me, um, civil rights leader describes how a life with God can change from moment to moment. And one thing that seemed impossible could very suddenly become possible. 
He says this, how in the world did I get here? The only answer I know to give is that these things can happen when you walk with God. It's easy to look at a person, to see where he started and how far he has come, and to think you know how the story will end. But I've learned what Saul learned on the road to Damascus. When God's involved, everything can change in an instant. You may think you know where you're headed, but often God has a different plan. Something exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Sometimes a light drizzle becomes a deluge. Other times you open your eyes to find yourself by still waters. Sometimes you hear thunder clapping along with the rain. Other times the clouds disappear so you can see a billion stars in the sky. How did I get here? God brought me here. God is fulfilling his purposes through me. It's not always easy. Sometimes even the faithful struggle. But God has a plan and a purpose for my life. And even though people may criticize, I'm going to choose that he's fulfilling, that he's not failing in my life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a God who's in control, a God who loves us beyond compare, a God who is working all things for our good and for your glory. Lord, we live this, in this fallen world, and sometimes we face situations in our lives that are challenging. Situations that cause us to question what you're doing. Lord, in those moments, help us to believe in your faithfulness. Help us to trust in your goodness. Give us the faith that we need to believe in you. Help us to truly believe that you're, you are fulfilling your plan, even when it feels like you're failing. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love poured out in the cross. Help us to inform everything that we do. In Christ's name I pray.